This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, welcome to the mini medical school series. Um, it's my great pleasure to talk to you tonight, and uh, I'm delighted to see how many people have shown up to learn about the advances being made in, uh, in autism research, in medicine in general, and uh, to become informed about this very exciting um, world of research. My name is uh, Dr. Stefan Sanders. I trained initially as a paediatrician in the UK, where I worked for a few years. Um, I then did a stint working as an expedition do- uh, doctor with the BBC before moving to Yale, where I did a PhD in research in the laboratory of Dr. Matthew State, looking at the cause of autism through genetics. I moved to UCSF about three years ago, and I'm a member of faculty here, and I run a lab which um, thinks about the cause of autism, again from a genetic perspective, and also the cause of the sex bias seen in autism, which is more common in males. And tonight I'd like to show you some of the latest research which um, I and others have been doing, and to think about how we go from identifying genes to understanding the cause of different conditions, particularly mental health conditions and particularly autism. So, let's start here. We start with a picture here of DNA. Here's the, uh, the double helix coming along, and we're seeing here a point where DNA is replicating. When we have children, when our cells divide and we grow, our DNA replicates and forms this fork here. And as it forms that fork, the nucleotides grow causing two different strands to come off. And we see pairing here between different base pairs. The green pairs with the purple, the orange pairs with the blue. And we see here a moment where a mistake is about to be made. An orange is about to pair with a purple. This happens extremely rarely, but we're going to see how this effect here can have a profound effect on our mental health. And we're going to see this through the lens of autism spectrum disorder. So autism spectrum disorder, which I will refer to as autism or ASD, is essentially a disorder of childhood neurodevelopment. And it's really seen as the combination of two different symptoms. The first is an impairment in social communication. This can be how we talk to each other, but it can also be nonverbal communication or the ability to interpret what other people are saying and meaning. On the other side, we have restricted or repetitive behaviour or interests. This might be something as um, simple as repeating a word. It might also involve a fixation of a certain idea, for example, superheroes or trains. And it might involve playing with things in an unusual way. Instead of taking toy cars and and driving them along, it might involve lining up those toy cars. Now, these two symptoms, for reasons we do not understand, seem to go together much more often than we'd expect by chance. And the combination of those two symptoms is what we refer to as autism. But autism rarely happens in isolation. It it often happens with other disorders. In particular, it's common to see seizures, it's common to see intellectual disability, and in fact the average IQ in autism is lower than that of the rest of the population. It doesn't mean everyone has a low IQ, just on, on, uh, on average. And it's also common to see ADHD, so hyperactivity. Autism has a very profound effect on children, also on the families those children are in, the adults those children become, and of course the society those children live in. 
And I've shown here a few of the numbers just to bring us to life. But I don't think any number can really capture the existence of a family with a child affected by this or the life that child goes through. A commonly uh, cited number is how frequently we observe autism. And here I'm quoting the latest estimate from the US government, which is 1 in 68, so that's 1.5% of children. I mentioned that I was interested in the sex bias. It is seen more commonly in males than females, and at the moment it's not entirely clear why that is the case. There seems to be something very particular about disorders of mental health in that they seem to be more commonly affecting one of the sexes than the others. And this isn't something we see with other disorders, apart from those of the reproductive organs. It has a dramatic effect on the life of the family, particularly the restricted or repetitive range of uh, behaviour and interests. What this means in practical terms is children with autism really like to um, follow the same routine. And disruption to that, be it through sickness or changes in schedule or holidays or weather, can be very, very disruptive for the child's sense of well-being and therefore also the family's. It is estimated that it costs the US economy $236 billion per year. That's a combination of the medical services required, the lost earnings of parents and the child when they grow into an adult, and also the um, services they require at school and then later in life in residential care. Now, this doesn't apply to everyone with autism. It, it, um, there's a very, very wide spectrum here. At the lower end, we see people who require residential care their entire lives. At the upper end, we see people who live a very, very functional life. But overall, this is the best estimate of the societal cost. And here's another idea, thinking about the, the implications of this. There's a fourfold reduction in your chance of having children. And I think behind that figure, we have to look at the reasons for that. And I think this reflects a similar decrease in the, the ability to form long-lasting relationships. And also, it's observed to be highly heritable. This means that if it's seen in one child, it's likely to be seen in their, in their sibling. Or if it's seen in a parent, if that, child, if that parent is able to, it goes on to have children, it's very likely to be in those children too. What this figure here means, or how it's certainly interpreted, is that a very, very large component of autism is genetic. And to give this number here context, if I was to look at the same numbers for something like height, which I think we all agree has a very strong genetic uh, component to it, we'd see estimates of maybe about 50-60%. If I was to look at something like breast cancer, again something commonly seen as being genetic, it would be about 30%. And so it's an interesting factor also of mental health disorders. They tend to be highly heritable. So that's true of intellectual disability, it's true of autism, it's true of schizophrenia. So given the importance of genetics, can we leverage that to understand what autism is? If I was here giving you a lecture on heart attacks, I would start off by telling you that they form due to a plaque on your coronary artery in your heart and that gets blocked and that causes a heart attack. If I'm trying to give you a similar lecture in autism, I can tell you what happens in the brain. But after that, I really get quite stuck. We don't have that same simple understanding of what autism is. And it's our feeling that this is one of the major obstacles to the holy grail here of developing treatments. And we see genetics as being one route towards doing this. And the dream, and at the moment it is a dream, but we're going to see that progress has been made in this, is that if we can identify specific genetic variants... Those variants will lead us to identify specific genes. Genes can then be used in further research in neuroscience 
And from that, we can identify the systems involved. So, for example, what part of the brain, what cell types are going on and leading to the autism diagnosis? From this, we hope we can understand the etiology. In the same way I can describe to you how a heart attack occurs, we want to be able to say the same for autism. And then ultimately from that, we aim to be able to generate some form of model where we can test therapeutics and from this develop a therapy which we can apply and help people as required in the population. And I'd like to talk to you today about the progress which has been made in getting from here towards that middle bit. And spoiler alert, but I'm afraid we're not going to get to this bit and probably not for another decade or, or more. But what we will see is that we've made substantial progress in the last few years going through here. And this has been interesting from a wider point of view because in mental health disorders, it's been very difficult to understand the true cause for many of them. In fact, some would argue all of them. And to see progress being made here and equal progress is being made in schizophrenia is very, very gratifying because it suggests that these are tractable and one day in the future we'll be able to treat them in the same way we can treat other disorders. Now you can imagine for a talk on genetics that the first thing we need to talk about is genetics and to, to give an idea of how genetics works and how to interpret the results we see. So I'm going to start at a very, very high level here and that's the entire genome. So the genome is a word used to describe all of the DNA, all of the information in your cells. And in humans, we have a lot of it. In fact, specifically, we have three billion base pairs from our mother and three billion base pairs from our father. These are arranged on chromosomes, and what we're looking at here are the chromosomes for a single individual. You'll note that there's 22, which are numbered, and then an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So this is a male. If there were two X's, this would be a female. Those six billion base pairs are arranged on these. So this chromosome here, for example, has 250 million. And they are numbered simply by their size. You see the smallest is number 22, and the largest is number 1. I said that you have three billion from your mother, three billion from your father, and that's why there's two of each chromosome. So here's two copies of chromosome 1. This one might be from the mother. That one might be from the father. In this way of looking at it, I have no way of telling. They look basically identical. The one thing I can be absolutely sure of is that came from the father. <laughs> so let's zoom in here, and we're going to focus here on chromosome 16. So within, a, within chromosome 16, we can zoom in and start to actually get down to the DNA. Now, when we look at it, if I just flick back to that last picture, you can see this sort of black and white appearance. And this is what you see if you look down a microscope with the unaided, well, with the microscope-aided human eye. This is how DNA looks once it's been stained. If I take that copy of chromosome 16, we can see here these light and dark bands. Notice there's a really, really dark band right in the middle there. If I go back here, you can see that really, really dark band we see that there's two arms to each chromosome. These are called the P arm and the Q arm, P being for petit, the French word for small, and that's where this was first observed. In the middle is a region called the centromere, and this is how those chromosomes line up when you exchange data between the mother's and father's chromosomes when you have a child. Now, within that chromosome, 
if I'm trying to communicate with someone over in Boston and say, you know, I found a really interesting thing on chromosome 16, I need some way of being able to tell them where to look. Remember, there's three billion of these. And so within this, we have various different types of addresses. So the first address we have is which arm it's on. So this is the Q arm, the long arm, and it's chromosome 16. When these were first looked at under the microscope, these different regions were seen, and the regions were labelled 1, 2, 3. So this is chromosome 16, region 1, and region 1 goes up to that first or second black mark just there. As technology improved, it was noted that within these regions there were further bands, and so then we have this subband there, so that's band 16Q12. And then as technology improved further, we discovered subbands, and so it becomes 16Q12.2 down to here. And then in 2000, the human genome sequence was released, and at this point we go from 16Q12.2 to a single address. And with every single chromosome, we label it from 0, or 1, all the way up to the end, which here is 90 million. And so this point here, which I've chosen arbitrarily, is 55 million and lots and lots of other numbers. And this allows me to say with real precision where I'm looking to a collaborator and to give us all a common reference of what the genome looks like. Now, every few years, we slightly revise these numbers because technology improves and there's a few bases lost or gained here and there in the reference sequence. But by and large, these are now fairly well fixed. And it's just one of the, the many amazing things which has come out of the Human Genome Project. So, we now have chromosomes, we have a way of identifying a region on a chromosome, and of course the vast majority of DNA between any two humans is identical. However, there are things which make us different, and this explains things like eye colour. And so we need to start thinking about ways of naming those different variants. Genetics has a reputation for being slightly complicated, but actually when it comes down to it, there really are a very, very small number of ways of changing the DNA. I'm going to leave off a couple of the more esoteric ones and concentrate on these three, which represent the vast, vast majority of variation in the human genome. First, we're going down here to single bases. So this might be the DNA at position 55 million, da 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 da. Here, I've taken a single nucleotide and changed it from a C to a T. No DNA has been gained, none has been lost, it's simply a change. And this is called a single nucleotide variant, because just one nucleotide has changed. If these are common, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are called SNPs. Slightly larger than that, we have insertions and deletions. Here's a deletion, a little bit of DNA has been deleted, or an insertion, a little bit of DNA has been put in. And then larger than that, we have copy number variation. This is exactly the same concept, we just give it a different name to make things a little bit more confusing. And so here's our chromosome, and a bit of the chromosome has been deleted, or a bit of it has been duplicated. Now, if I was to go back, let's say, 12 years, I'd be standing here telling you that this is the vast, vast majority of, of uh, variation in the humans. It was then discovered in 2004, a new technology came along to allow us to look at these, and there was a bit of a blip in it. It just didn't look quite right. And it turned out that large sections of DNA are missing or are present in everyone. And so... It's really astounding to think that you can miss 100,000 base pairs of DNA, and that's just not a problem. 
So the genome is, in places, very, very, very redundant. And actually, missing or gaining bits of DNA is a very normal part of the human genome. So that's one way of classifying genetics. Another way of thinking about classifying those variants is how common they are in the population. So I'm going to show you here there's really only four types of, uh, of inheritance and population frequency. We're going to start off here. So here's a variant which is common in the population. It's common in the fathers, it's common in the mothers, and it's passed on to the children here. And this is defined as being greater than 1%. And so an example of this would be the APOE4 locus in Alzheimer's. That explains about 30% of Alzheimer's risk. Another good example of this would be eye colour. So there's a common single nucleotide variant on chromosome 15, which actually disrupts the function of the gene next to it. And so that disruption means that a pigment is not produced, and that's what blue eyes are, essentially the, the loss of a normally functioning gene. We then have rare inherited variants. Same concept, they're present in the parents, here it's present in a mother, and that's passed on to a child. But here you see it's rare in the population, in fact less than 1%. An example here would be haemophilia, the tendency to bleed, which can be passed on from a mother to her child. And over here, we have de novo mutations. These are not present in the fathers or the mothers, and they arise new de novo in the child. An example of this would be Down syndrome, where we have a de novo mutation of an extra copy of chromosome 21. These are extremely rare. And then down here, we have somatic mutations. So these are not seen in the fathers, not seen in the, in the mothers, and they're not present in the child when the child is conceived. But with time, the cells make a mistake, and you get a mutation arising. And this is basically what causes cancer. It also can cause other disorders, and that, that's becoming apparent with modern research. So why do we care about how common something is in the population? Well, this all goes back to Darwin. Autism, remember we said it has an effect of being fourfold less chance of having a child. So that variant, so let's imagine it starts off here, it's like eye colour or blood group. It's very common in the population. But with every generation, those who have the variant are much less likely to pass it on. With time, that variant is going to be selected against and become rarer and rarer and rarer. And so what this means from a practical point of view, in a disorder like autism where it has an impact on your ability to have children, we are unlikely to see a really strong effect coming from one of these variants here. In fact, there's even a limit here of how much risk can come from autism because those parents need to have met each other, formed a long-lasting relationship, had a child. And so therefore, it's even the rare ones, there's a limit to how much risk they can mediate. Whereas these ones, these are new. So therefore, you can have parents who do not have autism, but this new mutation arising there. So these mutations here can, can mediate a huge, huge amount of risk. And a good example of this is Down syndrome. If you think in Down syndrome, the, the effects that causes the heart problems, uh, the problems with cognition, the, the problems with early dementia, those aren't present in the parents at all. It's all down to that de novo mutation. And so now we're going to look at your genome. So each of us has 3 billion base pairs. Approximately 0.1% of those, so 3.5 million, vary between one individual and the person sitting next to them. 
unless you're related to that person sitting next to you, of course. And so here we started talking about the different uh, variants by size. Here are the small ones, the middle ones, and the large ones. And here are the population frequencies. So here's the common inherited, the rare inherited, and the de novo. The vast, vast majority of the variation which makes up humans is common. And that means that you know, we are all really very, very, very similar to each other. However, there are these tiny numbers over here which are de novo. So think of this from the point of view of a geneticist trying to find the cause of a disease. I basically have two options. I can either look over here and try and find a variant with a tiny, tiny effect, and I'm trying to find that variant out of three million. And so I'm really looking for a needle in a haystack. Or I can look at these ones over here, and here these variants have a huge effect, and I'm looking for maybe one out of 70. So as a scientist, I always like to find the easy route, uh, and this is one easy route, uh, easy-ish, uh, to trying to find the cause of this disease. Now, that's not to say this is not a good method. In fact, this has been, looking at these has been highly successful in schizophrenia. But these, so far in autism, have turned out to be the key. And I'm going to take you through some of the research into that. But remember, we're focusing on these de novo mutations, which are new and can carry high risk. And I want to quickly touch on that conundrum again. So autism is highly heritable. That means it is genetic factors, and it suggests those genetic factors are passed on from the parents to the child. On the flip side, natural selection should remove those genetic factors from the population. So there's three ways or three ideas of getting around it. There are a few more esoteric ones, but I want, I want to focus on the sort of more common theories for this. The first theory is that you have many, many, many common variants, each of which has a tiny effect. And it's like rolling a hundred dice and you just got unlucky and all of those dice are showing a five or a six. Alternatively, it could be a smaller number of rare variants carrying moderate risk, or it could be one single de novo variant which carries a huge amount of risk, even though those are very, very rare. And we're going to go through and see how those models work. But also we need to think about how we apply that in terms of genetics. Now, when I was at medical school, this is what we learned about genetics. This gentleman here, Gregor Mendel, was a monk in Austria and was very into peas. And what he saw, he found that the, the peas tended to be tall or short and that you could actually predict what the next generation was going to be based on his laws of inheritance. And he put forward that basically there are two modes that this could work. It could either be dominant, and here we see a dominant pedigree, where it is a single copy passed on from the mother is sufficient to cause that trait, so tall peas. Or it could be recessive, where you need to have two short copies or two long copies. But the nice thing about Mendelian genetics is it's very easy. Something is either there or it's not, and it's either passed on with one copy from just one parent or two copies from both parents. However, if you think about children and the height of children, it becomes quite apparent that children in humans are not peas. And we all know that if you are very, very tall, you can still have a child who's sort of average height, or your child is you know, within a few standard deviations of your height, but is not necessarily the same height as you. And so here we see another gentleman, this is uh, Faulkner, and he came up with a different theory of quantitative genetics theory. And the idea here is that you have a trait in the population and multiple common variants, each of small to moderate effect, accumulate. And if you have many of those, 
you might be over here, or if you have very few of them, you might be over here. So let's think about height. If you have many variants which make you tall, you're going to be over here. If you have many variants which make you small, you're going to be over here. And we're going to come back to this later, but this presents these two, on the face of it, contrasting theories about how genetics happens. And we're going to see that this thinking gets us so far, but this thinking might be more important going through, uh, and it's maybe the combination of both which we need to work on. So, we're now going to pass on to those de novo variants with a, a good background in genetics. So I spoke about the importance of the Human Genome Project. Without that, none of what follows would have taken place. And really, the progress we've made in autism, though I'd like to think it's all due to uh, you know, dedicated, hard-working PhD students, a large part of it has actually been technological advances. And certainly, in autism, a major advance came from this technology, which is called a SNP genotyping array. And what this is, is a silicon wafer with a million tiny, tiny little holes in it. And each one of those holes corresponds to one place in the human genome, a place which is known to be variant between different people. And the experiment we did was to take these families here with autism from the Simon Simplex collection, and they were very special families where a single person was affected and multiple unaffected people were there, including an unaffected sibling. And we took their DNA from everyone in the family and we put it onto one of these arrays. And so we essentially get a glimpse of their DNA at a million different places. Every single one of those places creates one dot here. And what we expect to see is that everyone has roughly the same amount of DNA, two copies, and that you can have um, all, of, uh, all A's, A and a G, or all G's. And that's the normal two-copy pattern which we see. And I said that there was this blip in the data, which was recognised around 2004. Here's that blip. Suddenly we see this region here where there's more DNA, and instead of having three bands, we have four. And this turns out to be the signature of an increase in the amount of DNA. And actually, we have a duplication here in the region 16P11.2. And we can now say where that is in the genomes. This is 29 million base pairs. And we can describe that uh, duplication, including the genes underneath it. So this technology allows us to do something remarkable. We can look at many, many of these copy number variants across the entire genome. And that means we can look at genetics without having to be clever. We don't need to say, we know the cause of autism, we're going to go and look for it. We can say, where is the variation? And let the, the data essentially talk to us. And here's what we find. So I'm focusing now on de novo CNVs, copy number variants, the large-scale deletions in red and duplications in blue. And we're looking here at how many of these we have per person, so we have less than one of these per person. Remember, there's very, very few of these. And so this corresponds to about 5% of people with autism and about 2% of people without autism. And the, the probands means the, the affected person, the siblings, the unaffected sibling. And this is a very, very significant result. We see this has been replicated in many, many different cohorts. So what does this mean? Well, this is the baseline rate of mutation. All of us have a few de novo mutations, and actually it's the substrate for evolution. It's what allows the next generation to be ever so slightly different from the generation before it. The baseline rate of mutation is present in everyone. It's seen in siblings, it's seen in probands. But this, the explanation for this, is that these mutations here contribute risk towards autism. And this actually makes our lives very simple. All we need to do now is work out which mutations are here 
and which mutations are there. And after looking at the data for a while, we realised that there was a shortcut to doing this. Some of these mutations are in the same place in the genome. So remember how big that genome is. To see that same copy number variant in the same place by chance almost never happens. And here we see a relatively small region of the genome. It's only a million base pairs, two million base pairs. And there are seven of them in the same place. And by using a statistical framework, we're able to say that this region is very, very unlikely to be seen by chance. And therefore, this region here is contributing autism. And when we saw this, we were very, very excited because it was a region of the genome we already knew. It was a region which had been associated with Williams or Williams-Beren syndrome. And this was discovered in about the 1980s. And it's a syndrome characterised by a very specific heart defect, supravalvular aortic stenosis, a defect in cognition, and a very, very unusual personality. These children are hyper-sociable, increased sociability. They will just approach strangers. They are the, you know, very, very warm. They want to talk. They want to approach people. In fact, in some ways, it's the opposite of autism. If autism is a decrease in sociability, having a deletion in this region causes an increase in sociability. So we see this deletion is causing an increase in sociability, and we found the duplication in blue at that same place associated with autism. So what does that mean in practical terms? Well, somewhere in the 27 genes and 2 million base pairs here is something which encodes how sociable each of us are. It's not the complete answer to how sociable we are, but there is something in there which acts as a rheostat or thermostat of, of, of sociability in humans, which I must say I've personally found a very challenging concept. I mean, to me, how sociable I am is part of my personality, and yet it's hardwired in my very DNA. And if we could find the region of that genome which is responsible for that, we would have a very good start towards finding a treatment for autism. However, this, this region also shows the challenge. Every one of these little blue dots here represents a gene. There's about 27 or so in this region. This gene here, elastin, we know that causes the heart defects, but we can't find a single gene responsible for the neurological effects. And so while these de novo CMVs were very exciting, they were somewhat frustrating in that we could find this region, but we couldn't find the single gene. And even though we found eight distinct regions, all of them strongly associated with autism, we couldn't get down to that holy grail of a single gene, which allows the next steps of research to proceed easily. And so at this stage, we had identified some variants, but we were stuck on that next one. Again, technology rescued us. This time, the advance was high-throughput sequencing. Whereas before, we were able to look at a million places in the genome, high-throughput sequencing allows us to look at three billion. And we actually used a slight um, a shortcut version where we didn't look at all three billion, we just looked at the ones which are responsible for making genes, for making proteins. The reason for that was it was cheaper, a lot cheaper, and therefore we could do large numbers. This, these are the same families, again, looked at with the one affected and one unaffected sibling. We take that same DNA, it goes on the machine, and what you get out of it is a lot of different reads of, the, of uh, DNA. Those reads are then lined up on the human genome, which of course we now know from the work in 2000. And from this, when you line up each of these reads, we can spot the places where that person is different from the reference genome. So we can identify specific genetic variants. And this time we focused on 
mutations which we knew would stop that protein from being made. So one copy of the protein would be lost, and we call that loss of function. And when we did that, we saw a very, very similar result. Here we have the cases, the probands in red, and the controls in blue. These are the number of de novo loss of function mutations per individual, and our interpretation is exactly the same. Here is the baseline rate of mutation present in everyone, and this will be in genes which aren't associated with autism. For example, genes to do with your sense of smell, or that make the mucus that line the passages of your nose. They seem to be very uh, prone to mutation. And here are the mutations contributing to autism. And again, what we need to do is work out which mutations are here versus which ones are here. And the same logic takes us through. If we can find a single gene with multiple of these de novo loss of function mutations, we would not expect to see that big chance, and therefore we can get down to a single gene. And what we're seeing here is five different de novo loss of function mutations. Remember how incredibly rare these are. You know, we're seeing maybe one of these per person, if we're lucky, but more like one in, one in ten people. And yet five of them line up in this single gene, one out of 20,000 genes. The chance of that happening by chance is you know, really, really, really small. And so this gives us great confidence that this gene here, ARID1b, is an autism gene. And because we are, we are looking everywhere, we don't just find one gene, we actually found 65. And this was a really dramatic progress in understanding autism. We go from saying it's genetic to having a really concrete list of genes involved. We estimate that over 1,000 genes contribute to autism. That's one in 20 genes. But these 65 probably represent the strongest ones, the ones that have the biggest effect in autism. So this has really exposed a chink in the, in the armour of autism. Finally, we have an insight into what's going on. And surprisingly these actually account for a, for a fairly large number of people with autism. So if I was to go into the local clinic and start sequencing children as they come through, I would find these mutations in about 20.6% 20, 20 of them. And if I do that in the siblings, I'd find it in 10%, and simply subtracting those, 10.5% of children have autism in part because of one of these de novo mutations. And you think how incredibly rare they are. And yet those de novo mutations, which are 70 out of 3.5 million, they are contributing a huge amount of risk for this disorder. And when we look at the specific genes, we can see commonalities amongst them. So this is the gene CHD8, which is actually the, the top associated autism gene. And here's one way of looking at, at um, the similarities between people, the effect it has on the structure of the face. And you can see here there are some distinctive features, particularly a sort of widening here, um, and also, if we could measure it, a slightly increased head size. And the key point I want to make of this is that when we zoom in and we find that gene, this child no longer becomes a child who just has autism. They're a child with a particular syndrome which has not been recognised to date. And that syndrome is contributing towards their autism diagnosis. It also means that we could then give that family some insight into what to expect in the future. And hopefully, one day, we might be able to use this to guide treatment. And we've explored here de novo mutations, which, affect, which cause loss of function. This is a list of many, many other different categories of de novo mutation, which to date are unexplored, and we're still working on this. Some of these should be interpretable, so we have the single nucleotide variants, the insertions, the deletions small copy number variants 
And all of these we think will have some contribution and we're going to try and map out the total contribution there. So 10.5% is the baseline. I wouldn't be surprised if that doubles. So that's de novo mutations. What about common variations? So we had this other idea that autism could be contributed by many, many little variants, each having a tiny, tiny effect. Now, those effects tend to be so tiny that viewing them directly is, is, is difficult. We're going to see on the next slide an attempt to do that, but so far in autism it's not been very successful. But on mass, we can estimate how much contribution they're, they're having by comparing siblings together. And so here is our first map of how risk takes place in autism. Here we have the common variants. And so it seems in this analysis that common variation explains 50% of autism risk. We also see a contribution coming from de novo and from rare variants. Now, I just said that 10% of autism is caused by de novo mutations, and here I'm showing a slide saying it's 3%. The difference is this is in the whole population, whereas the 10% is in just the individuals with autism. And because those de novo mutations give so much risk, we tend to almost only see them in people who have autism rather than the rest of the population. But for the common variation, that's not the case. It's present throughout the population. This here is unaccounted. Now, that could be many, many things. It could be the de novo mutations we've not understood yet. It could be interactions between these different categories. It could be environmental factors. And while to date... We don't have any really good, reliable environmental factors. It seems almost certain there will be some of them there. And there are statistical methods, in fact called a genome-wide association study, which try to find specific common variants. Here's a list of the top hits we get in autism. I'm not going to go through each one. It's really just to demonstrate the the key point here. What we want to see is a a threshold of 1 times 10 to the minus 8, and then seeing it replicating in another population. And to date, none of the variants found in autism meet that criteria. In schizophrenia, there are 108 specific loci which do meet that criteria. And the difference is in schizophrenia, they've looked at you know, 50,000, 60,000 cases. In autism, we're at 5,000. And I'm sure that when we have 10 times as many samples, we will see a, um, maybe not an equally long list, but still a long list of common variants associated. So can we put this all together into a single model of of how genetics leads to autism? And so we saw this slide before. Here's the simple medical school genetics. Things get passed on in a nice orderly fashion and everything is very easy. And here's the more complicated idea of many, many variants of small effects which conspire to make you tall or short or with autism or without. And if I show those in a different way, we can actually see that there's, there's really more in common between these models than there are differences. So here, we're going to um, start off with this one here. Here's our trait. Here's a line. And we define that line as being a diagnostic threshold. This could be a line after which I say this person is tall. Maybe it's six foot six. Or this could be a line where I say this person has a social impairment. And therefore, that line is the threshold or diagnosis of autism. Many, many variants accumulate. Some of them protect you. Some of them have a negative effect. And eventually, if the negative ones outweigh these ones, we cross that line and we say there's a diagnosis of autism. If I then go to Mendel, what we have instead is here's the general population. 
then there's this one variant of such massive effect that it alone crosses this diagnostic threshold. But within there, there is variability. We spoke about haemophilia earlier, which is a nice example of a Mendelian disorder. People with haemophilia have different degrees of severity. Some of them bleed a lot, some of them bleed less. The same is true of cystic fibrosis. Some people lead a very full and active life. Others have very, very, very severe symptoms. So still there's this balance. The common variation still plays a role, but this one variant has such a big effect that it alone makes you cross that threshold, regardless of the common variation. And autism appears to be the unification of these two ways of thinking. Here we have the trait in the population. This is now social communication. Here's our diagnostic threshold. And to get over that, that's how you get a diagnosis of autism. And it's a combination of common variation, of rare variation, and de novo mutations. This might represent one single child. There might be another child who doesn't have a de novo mutation, but has many rare variants and a large burden of common variation. But this seems to be the picture of how autism occurs. And what is now transpiring is it's also a picture of how congenital heart malformations occur and how intellectual disability occurs, and even Tourette's, and uh, also um, epilepsy. And I think this represents really a map for understanding paediatrics, particularly the severe disorders of paediatrics. I expect many of them will have this same pattern. And the same methods we've applied to autism are equally applicable to other disorders. So we've identified variants and we've now identified genes. In fact, we have 65 genes. But what we want to do is to understand autism. And so to do that, we need to think of a framework for how do you go from these 65 genes to actually making sense of them. And things are especially difficult because these genes are um, very pleiotropic. And what that means is that they do multiple different functions. If the gene was, was very simple, if all of those genes were on a single type of synapse, which was only seen in a single type of cell, and it was only present for five days of development, this would be really, really easy. But what we see instead is these genes have many, many, many different effects. They might change the proliferation of a cell, like how, how many cells are reproduced. It might change the differentiation of a cell, whether it becomes a neuron or um, you know, a blood cell. So we need to start thinking of a way to progress from a gene to looking at them together. And I want to go take through how genetics leads to variation. And so what we're going to build here is a model of information flow in humans, in fact, in, in any species. So we start off over here with DNA. Here is a single variant of DNA. And over here is the phenotype. The phenotype is everything that makes you who you are. It's your hair colour, your eye colour, your sense of, um, of sociability. All of those factors can be described as phenotype. And somehow, a genetic variant can alter that phenotype. And if we think here that that variant is a tiny, submicroscopic base pair of DNA, and yet somehow that phenotype is something we can, we can see in a person it's clear that that information there needs to be amplified. And as it amplifies, it also diversifies. So let's take eye colour here. Eye colour doesn't just affect eye colour, it also affects your hair colour and your skin colour and probably a whole host of other things we don't know about. So that's, that signal there is amplified and also diversified, shown by these getting wider and wider. And what we're looking at here is the progression. 
DNA goes to RNA, which goes to a protein, which then changes cells, which then changes how cells interact, tissues, organs, systems. Essentially, that signal gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But this isn't a complete model. We need to think about regulation. If I was to go and uh, drink some coffee, drinking that coffee would release caffeine into my system, and that caffeine would go into my cells and it would stimulate them. And that stimulation would lead to an increase in certain genes being expressed, so the RNA and the protein and the cell changes. And so therefore, we see this back regulation. So information flows in both ways. Except for DNA. Of course, DNA is constant throughout our lives. The only time DNA can really be influenced is in reproduction. And so here we see Darwin's idea of selective pressure altering the DNA in the next generation. But of course, the environment can also have an effect. So here we have the effect of the environment, which can influence many, many things, again, except for DNA. The only time which the environment can influence DNA is through mutation. So, for example, if I was to go and smoke, that would cause mutations in my, in my lung cells, leading to a change in DNA. But not in the whole of me, just in a few cells. So this really gives us a map of how information flows. And within this, we want to understand how a gene, an autism gene or an autism variant, leads to a diagnosis of autism. And so here's a simple idea of how that might happen. Here's a gene. It could be, for example, the gene P10. And the gene P10 leads to many different things. There's a syndrome associated with it. It leads to seizures, it leads to autism, and it leads to large heads called macrocephaly. And so that single genetic variant is amplified and diversified to many, many different phenotypes, many of which we probably don't recognise to date. But somehow, the information there must flow through all these different stages, ultimately ending up in autism, and that being distinct from having a large head or from having seizures. Now, this shows a very, very, very simple idea. In truth, this probably has multiple different paths. It has circles, it has spirals. It's going to be a very, very complex trace. But in terms of thinking about this, I think this gives an, an idea that the information must get from here to here. And if I was to look at it backwards, we just saw the experiments where I started off with a group of people with autism and looked at what their genetics were. And what we found was that there were many, many, many genes contributing. So each one of those genes must go through this same information flow, but ultimately end up in the same place. And this leads us to the thought that while there are many genes and a single diagnosis, there must be a degree of convergence across this path. And you can see here this information flow is identical for that same gene in these two ones. Just the difference is whether I'm starting with autistic people or starting off with genes. So why does this matter? Well, it all comes down to causation. When I'm looking at DNA, things are relatively easy. DNA doesn't change. It's not affected by the environment. Therefore, if I see a change in DNA, I can be fairly sure that change in DNA is causing autism. But once I get to RNA, I don't know if I'm looking at something causing autism or the effect of just having had a cup of coffee. But we need to find this true cause to be able to understand it. And I want to illustrate some of the sort of potential other relationships we could have here. Now, let's imagine that we find a certain type of cell called microglia in the brains of people with autism. Now, we could say that that is the cause. And if that's true, that means that the changes in DNA lead to an increase in microglia, and that leads to autism.
Or we could say that it's a confound. So, for example, here, the changes in DNA lead to autism and they lead to that increase in microglia. But the increase in microglia doesn't lead to autism. So that would be represented here. Um, and this is called a confound. You can see that that does not lead to autism, but it is related to the cause which does. An example of this would be if I looked at the relationship between drinking, drinking alcohol, and uh, lung cancer. I would find quite a strong association, and the reason for that is, certainly coming from England, that it's very common that when you're smoking, to have a drink with it. That doesn't mean that the alcohol causes lung cancer, it's just a confounding effect. We could also think about the consequence. What if autism leads to a reactive inflammation of the brain? And that inflammation causes an increase in these microglia cells. In that case, those microglia are not the cause, they are the consequence. And then finally, it could just be a coincidence. It could just be that we chose the wrong brains, we got unlucky, and we saw this signal when, it, when we shouldn't have done. And what we need to do is to find the causal path and what's been done in other disorders is to look in models. So, for example, we might look in a certain type of cell or a certain type of animal, and we can try and replicate that human phenotype in the animal or in the cell. Now, the trouble with that is in autism, it's very unclear what a mouse or a worm or a fish with autism would look like. They might not squeak as much, and that's one of the ideas that have been put forward for this, but it's not clear that truly is autism. In fact, it might even be the case that the autistic features cannot be replicated in the mouse. So we need to start thinking of this in a different way. So now, instead of looking at a single gene, we're going to look at two genes. Here is our diagnosis of autism. Here's our first gene. This is P10. That information is flowing, leading to autism distinct from the large head and the seizures. Here's another gene. It doesn't cause the same effects initially as the same as P10. This might be CHD8, one of the top genes in autism. But somehow that information must end up in the same place. And so therefore, there's going to come a point when these two need to come together. And we call this concept convergence. And then the hope is that there will be a common path. And that is the secret to what autism is. So let's go back to our analogy of here of heart attacks, where we know the answer and we know what it really looks like. If I was to do these same genetic experiments in, in some people who are having heart attacks, I would find several different risk factors. I would find things to do with lipids, things to do with cholesterol, things to do with diabetes, inflammation, clotting factors. At the face value, none of those seem really related together. But as we start to look through, we see they converge on causing this fatty deposit in a coronary artery. And that fatty deposit then leads to this common pathway of an occlusion of that coronary artery and a heart attack. And so by looking at how those different systems come together, we can gain insight into the true etiology of the disorder. Now, I'm sure autism is going to be more complicated than a blockage of a single artery, but I think the principle still holds. Even if there are multiple types of autism, I still think this idea that we're going to see convergence is implicit in the sheer number of genes we're seeing here. So let's see if we can do that. We're going to go back to our 65 genes, or subsets of them, and see if we can go from there to understanding what autism is. So we're going to start off with something fairly easy. We're going to take those genes and ask, do, they, do the proteins they make tend to bind together? Do they interact and what we find is that they do. In fact, they interact more than we would expect by chance. 
And when we do that, we find they cluster into two groups. Here's group one, here's group two. And we find this group two, when we look at what types of genes they are, they are genes which work on the synapse, the communication between nerve cells. And when we look over here, we find these genes are to do with chromatin. Chromatin is the, uh, the epigenetics, the part which makes the software of DNA, which tells the DNA how to work. It's what determines what type of cell um, a skin cell is or a nerve cell. Essentially, it's the substrate for development. So this, I think, is an exciting finding. This has been replicated many times with different ways of finding those genes, and it's something we are now really quite sure about in autism. This module here of chromatin and development was not even thought of before we did these gen genetic experiments. The synapse was, but this really, really wasn't. So on the face of it, we found a completely new area of biology which we'd not implicated with autism before, and this creates a really um, great substrate for further research. That's the optimistic view. If I was to take a more pessimistic view, what we've discovered here is that these are neurogenes and these are developmental genes. So what we've discovered is that this is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which is where we started, autism being a childhood neurodevelopmental disorder. So from that point of view we can go further. But fortunately, people have. So I'm going to start off here with the work of Jeremy Wilsey, who is a um, professor at this university. And what he did was to look at how those genes discovered um, co-express together, how they rise and fall throughout the development of the human brain. So here is the development of the human brain. This is the um, very, very early in human development. This is birth, and here's childhood and adulthood. And he asked, how often do I see those genes clustering together? Do they rise and fall in the same place? And he looked, for, along with different uh, regions of time, in different regions of the brain. And what he found was there were these two time and region places where we see a really dramatic um, enrichment together. So this is the mid-fetal development, so second trimester, in the prefrontal cortex, which is the front bit of the brain, which is very important for decision-making executive functions. And we see the second um, period of convergence here, which is in um, after birth before the age of two, and that's in the cerebellum and the thalamus. This is the network he found. This is those genes co-expressed together. The black genes are the ones we have great confidence in. The grey genes are the ones we had partial confidence in, which were sucked into that module. And this shows how they interact in this very, very, very dense relationship. And he was able to go further than that. He was able to take layers of the brain. The cortex has many, many, many different layers. It develops from here, and the cells migrate outwards. And the cortex is where we think. It's the, the grey matter of the brain. And by looking at each of these different layers, he was able to ask, where was that signal the strongest? And what he found was it was the inner cortical plate. He was then able to look at cell-type-specific markers. So these are, these are genes which are only expressed in one type of cell and ask which of those genes are expressed in his network. And he found it was the layer 5-6 cortical glutamatergic neurons. And layer 5-6 is what develops from the inner cortical plate. So this really ties together very nicely. So putting this all together from this paper we find that those genes seem to be most important in utero, in the cortex, the frontal cortex, in cortical neurons, um, in layers five and six. 
So think of this from the point of view of, of trying to go forward. We have this list of genes. What do you do with them? When, where, what do you look for? This leads us to a very, very clear hypothesis which can be tested. And we can put that into a model. So we started off with those developmental chromatin genes and the synaptic genes. Interestingly, we find that they don't particularly interact at a protein level, so they're distinct. And here's that mid-fetal period where we see those genes in the cortical projection neurons of the prefrontal cortex and another group found it in the um, straital medium spiny neurons, two regions which are connected. And this seems to be one of the areas where autism occurs. We're not sure exactly how or what or exactly what this means, but this gives us a very, very clear idea of where to look. And then we see this second period of convergence between birth and infancy, where the synaptic genes seem to be more important than they were in this initial one. When we look at the brains of people with autism, so these are people who have unfortunately died in a car accident and and nobly have donated their brain towards science, we find that there are two groups of genes which which differ between the autistic brain and the non-autistic brain. Here's one set of genes, and these are the synaptic genes. In fact, these are the same synaptic genes which we've now discovered contribute to as autism. And these are mostly down-regulated, so under-expressed in the autistic brain. And then we find another group of genes, and these are the microglia, those inflammatory cells, and these are upregulated in the autism brain. So this gives us a bit of an insight into what happens after here. Somehow, these changes which we're seeing must lead to persistent pathology in the brain. And we know it's persistent because adults still have autism. And that somehow leads to, leads to the autism symptoms. And one glimpse we've had there is that the synaptic genes might be particularly important. Another approach to this is we can take the genes which are um, causing these chromatin changes and seeing which chromatin changes they cause. So we're going to take the top autism gene, which is CHD8, and we're going to ask, where in the genome does CHD8 bind? And the answer to that is that we find it binds to two sets of genes. The first one is those other chromatin developmental genes. So CHD8, which is our top autism gene, is a regulator of regulators. So it seems to regulate the other autism developmental genes. It doesn't bind to the synaptic genes, but it does change the expression of them. So it binds directly here, but not here, but still has an influence on those same synaptic genes we saw in autism. So putting that into the module, here CHD8 has a direct effect on these chromatin genes and an indirect effect on the synaptic genes. And we can take another gene which is associated with autism, and this is Fragile X. So Fragile X is a syndrome which has been known about for many years, and it's the most common cause of intellectual disability, particularly in boys. And about 50% of people with Fragile X also have autism. And so in many ways, this was the first autism gene. If we take the gene which is made by Fragile X and ask what it does, we find that one of its major functions is to bind to the RNA of genes. And when we look at what RNAs it binds to, we find that the answer is particularly genes associated with autism. And so here, we're looking at those loss-of-function mutations which we observed in the the DNA, and we see that many of them are targets of this FMRP protein 
in fact, far more than we'd expect by chance. And this is then a replication of that, looking at a very, very large number of genes and seeing a very, very, very significant result. So Fragile X, the protein that it makes, binds to other autism genes. In fact, specifically, it binds to both the chromatin and the synaptic genes. And so here we have our first idea, our first model of what autism might be. Uh, It's important just to pause and think about how we got here. At no point did we start off with a hypothesis of what autism was. We didn't say it was synaptic. We didn't say it was caused by the cerebellum or the front of the brain. All we did was let the data speak for itself. We found mutations because we could look everywhere in the genome. And when we looked everywhere in the genome, we found clusters of those mutations, and that gave us a list of genes and regions which are related to autism. When we took that list of genes, which is ones which autism has shown us where to find, and then integrated them with other data sets, we find that they come together. They're not random genes, that they actually form, they converge in these certain areas. And the regions they converge in particularly are chromatin and synapse, particularly in utero, but also a little bit post um, after birth. We find that other, when we look at the specific genes, they also bind together. So there are degrees of interaction within this. And also we start to see some effects here which persist into adult life. So this here leads us to a slightly simpler model. Now here we're going into theory. We don't actually have evidence to support this. But when we see this indirect effect here and that persistence in the synapse, it's very tempting to think that the role of these chromatin genes is to influence the synapse in particular. And that these chromatin genes bind to the synaptic genes and that leads to the persistent changes we see in autism in adult life. And this is a nice hypothesis because it's very easy to test. We can simply take each one of those genes and ask where do they bind and see if this actually pans out. So, is this a complete model? Is it case closed? Is this our coronary artery blocked? Unfortunately, we're quite a long way away from that. It's very unclear what many of these bits look actually mean in reality. These chromatin genes, we're really, they're very, very new. We have very little idea of what they actually do in practical terms. The synapse, we have maybe a few more tools for investigating those, but it's still unclear exactly which synapse we need to go and look at. And here, where I've said persistent neuropathology, that really means the whole of neuroscience. And this is just the model we get from looking at de novo mutations with a current available data. There are many, many other theories about how autism gets caused. There's theories about the amygdala, about the cerebellum, and we can't say that any of them are wrong or right. All we can say is that when we follow the data, this is the the slice of the pie that we get to. So we're pretty sure that parts of this are right, but we can't say yet that other theories are wrong. And I think there's really a a sort of a degree of inclusion here. We need to keep doing these methods to see where we end up. So we've progressed a little bit further here. We've identified our variants, identified genes. And as you can see, we're starting to get this first burgeoning understanding of what autism might be in reality. But I, I want to end on a note just to show how far we have to go. So today, what we've done is focus on these de novo mutations. And you've seen the reason we focused on these de novo mutations is is really it's the only place we're seeing a currently easy-to-understand signal. And so here I've represented an optimistic and a pessimistic view of the future. The optimistic one, these are the de novo mutations here. And we now have a reasonable idea of what those might be doing at a 30,000-foot view. 
But we know that these are not the only variants which are contributing risk. We've seen there's a very, very large um, contribution from common variants. We just can't find out which ones yet. Now, in the optimistic view, the de novo mutations and the common variants act in the same way. In fact, so does the environment, and so do rare and homozygous effects. So these are sort of Mendelian disorders. In this optimistic view, it really doesn't matter where we start. If de novo mutations work, that's great. We'll find everything we need to know by following those, and hopefully we'll be able to use those to interpret the other forms of biology. If this is the case, then we're really making good headway, and we can start to look further and further at the same method, find more and more genes, understand what those genes do, and then hopefully in 5, 10, 30 years, I can stand here and say, and here's our first treatment. However, this is the pessimistic view. It might be that we are just looking at one fairly narrow slither of what autism is, and that there's very little overlap between these rare very high effect de novo mutations, but when we look at common variants, they affect a completely different part of biology. It might be that these are affecting those microglia, which we see in the post-mortem brain, whereas these don't seem to be. When we look at the rare ones, we're going to see a whole host of different disorders, maybe metabolic ones. And when we look at the environment, that again is going to cause a different place. And right now, it's very, very difficult to see how we're going to progress for the environment if you think of the success we've had in genetics, it's because we could look everywhere. Trying to look everywhere of the environment, and bearing in mind that we have very little record of the environment in our later lives, is going to be extremely difficult. Imagine autism comes down to a very specific exposure in utero. You know, for example, your mother had a bad cold at week 23 of, of uh, gestation. By the time you're diagnosed with autism, there's going to be no record of that unless your mother was meticulous in her maternity notes. This, therefore, represents the pessimistic view that we have a very, very long way to go. And the question really is, which one of these models is going to be right? I think that's an urgent region for trying to see these common variants. That will give us a first glimpse of whether things are coherent or not. So I'm going to end now with a summary here of the things we've gone through. The first thing we've seen is this amazing contribution of these extremely rare de novo mutations. They account for a tiny, tiny fraction of the variation within us, and yet they account for a huge amount of autism risk. And from these, we've been able to leverage them to identify specific genes, which have been a major hurdle in autism research. But we've seen that autism is not caused by these, it's a combination of factors. In fact, I'd go further and say that in, the wrong, in one person that de novo mutation causes autism, in the next person it might cause schizophrenia, or nothing at all. We find that these genes themselves have many, many different functions. There is no, at the sta this stage, there is no easy answer. But we've also seen that when you stop thinking about a single gene and start thinking about how those genes come together, how they converge on biology, we really can make some progress in starting to understand the 30,000-foot view of what autism is. And hopefully this technique will accelerate and allow us to make sense of what these genes mean. And we've seen also that integrating these data sets have been extremely important. Really here we're drawing on a huge amount of science and just leveraging it towards autism. We've seen the Genome Project, we've seen the advances in microarrays, advances in sequencing technology, and a whole host of other data sets, the basic science which really drives this. And without people donating their samples, without the funding which allows us to do these really large-scale analyses of basic science, none of that would have been possible. And I'm going to end with uh, just highlighting some of the key people who've helped on this journey we've seen today. 
Matthew Stace is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry here, really has done an amazing job in, in leading these um, autism work. There's been a major, major role in identifying the contribution of de novo mutations, which we've seen today. Jeremy Wills, he's also at UCSF, he's an assistant professor here, and he did the work on thinking about when and where and how autism uh, emerges. Ninad Seston and Jim Noonan are at Yale, and we collaborated with them thinking about the expression data and the role of CHD8. And then Bernie Devlin and Catherine Rader are in uh, Pittsburgh at two different universities there. These guys are statisticians. When we're dealing with these massive data sets, it becomes really key how you interpret probabilities. And we're finding that actually their contribution has been absolutely invaluable. And none of these advances would have taken place without their insights. And then a whole host of other people. Probably the most important people are the very, very brave families who volunteered their DNA. I think taking part in genetic studies is a brave act because you never quite know what's going to come out of it. But without those 2,500 families, this again would not be possible and the funding from that uh, foundation there. And finally, thank you to the audience for your rapt attention and I look forward to questions. So the question is, are there specific examples of environmental factors? And secondly, is it possible to have autism purely environmentally without genetics? Uh, the easy answer to both of those is I don't know. Um, I think to date, I would say there are no really definitive environmental triggers. Now, you might find someone who disagrees with that, and you know, it's important to have healthy debates in scientific communities. When we look at the confidence we have of our top genes, really nothing's going to overtone those. There have been ideas of things associated with autism. Um, pollutants have uh, received some attention recently. Um, I would say that none of them have anything like the confidence we have, and they're all based on fairly small numbers. And the biggest difficulty there is how do you tie in that early development with the diagnosis of autism and trying to make sense of what that person has. And also, while there's 3.5 billion base pairs, there are near enough infinite environmental exposures. It's a much, much harder problem. In terms of whether it's possible to have autism purely environmentally, maybe. I really um, I don't know. At the point, in the ideal world, we'd be able to take all the genetic factors and then look for the person who doesn't have those genetic factors, but we are so far away from that. If we take all the genetic factors we have for the common variation, it explains one, maybe 2% of autism risk. So we, can't, we just can't do that experiment right now. Um, I find it entirely plausible that a, there's going to be... Um, sort of de novo environmental exposures. Very rare, very, very high effect environmental exposures at just the right time in development, which could lead to autism. But that's going to be very, very difficult to find. Yeah. So the question is, um, what about stochastic random effects? Uh, it's in my model of uh, the information flow. So our brain it basically uh, comes from these single cells which develop into the neuroectoderm that then develops into this amazingly complex brain structure. And that's done through the DNA. The DNA basically encodes the structure of the human brain. But it doesn't do that by saying this neuron should go in this location. It does it by controlling random effects. So when we get down to chemistry, all of chemistry is just random effects of chemicals bumping together. And you could actually, I think, view the whole of development as being constraining random processes. So a simple example of this would be looking at the vessels in your hand. If I look at my artery in my, in my wrist, 
there's one artery here and there's one artery there. And there was a time in my life where I could name many of them. <laughs> if I look at the back of my hand, I see my veins. And those can be very, very, very different. If I compare that with the person next to me, the arteries will be in the same place, the veins will not. Evolution has constrained the random effect of where those arteries forms because it's important. It has not constrained the veins as much because it just doesn't matter. And I think the same is going to be true of the brain. We're going to see there are some things which really matter. You need to have six layers of cortex. The cortex needs to fold in in on itself and form these different regions. But there are going to be other bits where it doesn't matter so much. And so one of the models of how these genes could have an effect is that they just don't constrain those random processes so well. Now, if that's the case, then it means that if once we explain all the environmental factors, all the genetic factors, there's going to be this gap at the end which we just can't explain. And I think as scientists, we find that uncomfortable. Certainly uh, physicists wrestled with this for many, many years. But probably there will be a just random contribution to this and many other diseases. What remains to be seen is just how, how much that's a contributor. So the question is the relationship between Asperger's and autism spectrum disorder. So this relates to diagnostic criteria. The, the simple answer is Asperger's is now part of autism spectrum <coughs> disorder and they're considered one, um, one entity together with Asperger's now mapping to the milder end of autism spectrum disorder. The reason for that is, really comes down to what does a diagnosis mean? A diagnosis needs to, to make sense. So, for example, if I want to characterise the difference between a heart attack and a stroke... They are biologically different, the symptoms are different, and we can really meaningfully distinguish them into two groups. If we try and distinguish autism and Asperger's, people were just finding it was impossible. There was this grey line, there was no way of reliably um, uh, sort of distinguishing them. And then the latest version of the criteria for autism diagnosis just abolished the subsets and said, this is all one uh, spectrum. We might even see this going further. Genetically, we are seeing overlap between the risk factors of autism, the risk factors of intellectual disability, and the risk factors of schizophrenia. And so I I think genetics has a lot to contribute towards understanding that sort of landscape of mental health disorders. So the question is, can we predict um, the onset of autism if if a man and woman come and and ask to avoid that? Or, or any other, or any genetic. So, um, in autism, the answer is no. Um, in other disorders, it is possible. So, a situation where that might be advantageous is if uh, two individuals come from very similar population. If they are very related, there are some things you can test for. Um, an example would be cystic fibrosis. Coming from a European background, cystic fibrosis is more frequent, and therefore, in having a child, one of the things which people are offered is the chance to test for cystic fibrosis. Um, So there are genetic disorders where that can both be done and actually can give useful, actionable results. I personally think that we are not going to get there in autism. I suspect what we're going to find is that autism is so complex, we will never get to a 100% diagnostic test from genetics alone. We might get there through a combination of genetics and another factor. For example, I don't know, the, the, next, the successes to ultrasound or you know, something which gives us an insight into the brain. And the reason is it's just too complex. It's that combination of the common and the rare and the de novo. And right now, we, we just can't work out how how that's going to play out in any one individual if the random effects are there then it's going to be even harder um, and so right now there is no diagnostic test we can use 
However, if I got DNA from the developing fetus, there are some mutations which I could say with some, some confidence are going to lead to adverse neurological outcomes. I think interpreting those in a clinical context is very, very, very difficult. Um, if I say your developing child's got a 50% chance of having intellectual disability, I think it's a really difficult number to deal with. I mean, I, I have no idea how we expect families and, uh, and um, parents to actually make sense of that number in terms of deciding what they want to do. Uh, and that's going to be a big, big challenge in applying genetics to that kind of situation. It was easy when Mendel was right. Yeah, absolutely. So the question is, has the rate of autism increased and is that due to changes in diagnosis? So um, absolutely the rate has increased. If I was giving this lecture 20, 30 years ago, I'd be saying that the rate was 1 in 10,000. I'm now saying the rate is 1 in 68. So it's, it's gone up a huge amount. I think there's a lot of evidence to support changes in diagnosis as being a major uh, drive of that. Um, we can see that the, the, the way we define it has changed considerably over time. I think the other, um, the other way of looking at this is thinking about the alternatives. Now, we know this is a genetic disorder, and we've just seen there's a very, very high contribution from de novo mutations. If it genuinely was a new onset of these mutations, if they hadn't existed 50 years ago, we would also expect to see a very high rate of cancer, because anything which is inducing mutations in the germline is likely to cause cancer as well. So I, th I think um, diagnosis plays a major, major part. We cannot absolutely rule out a true increase in the rate of autism. And that's just because it's a very, very difficult assessment to make. It takes eight, eight to ten hours to properly diagnose autism in an individual. And to try to do that in enough people to make sense, and especially to do it over a sort of 50-year span, is proving very, very difficult. However, when we move to um, other countries, for example, a study was done in Korea, and use those diagnostic criteria in the population en masse, we find very, very similar rates in Korea to that we do in the US. And when you think about the sort of different developmental trajectories of those countries, uh, that's seen as reassuring that there might be, um, that it's, there's not a true change in diagnosis, that it's the same underlying substrative disorders. And the way to think about this is, if I was trying to identify who is tall, and 20 or 30 years ago you needed to be 7 foot, whereas now you need to be 6 foot. And so the question is about the um, influence of sex on the diagnosis of autism. So autism is diagnosed more frequently in males than females, and that's been seen since 1943 consistently. Um, there are two possibilities here. Possibility one is that uh, males are more at risk of autism or females are more protected from autism, and it's a true biological difference. Possibility two is that males and females get equal rates of autism. It's just that female autism looks different, and all of our tools are designed on males. Um, interestingly, from a genetic point of view, there is no difference between those two models. Um, both of them have this idea of a trait varying in the population and the idea that there's a difference in where that line goes. The thing which does differ is the question about impairment. The question is, those females who are just below that diagnostic threshold, are they impaired? And this gets difficult because how do you, how do you reliably define impairment? Um, it is difficult in people with autism, particularly the higher functioning. It's difficult in people just beyond that spectrum. And it's an area of very, very active research. In fact, it's something which Summer Bishop at this university is really working very, very hard to try and solve. From a genetic point of view, 
Both of those explanations require a difference between males and females. Either females need to be protected or they need to have different symptoms of autism. Now, that's not true in other disorders. If, if I have a stroke, if I have asthma, yeah, it looks basically the same in males and females. If I look at neurological disorders, many of them have sex bias. Autism does, Tourette's does, ADHD does, schizophrenia does, anxiety, etc., etc., etc. The young, the ones which happen young um, in childhood tend to be male predominant. The ones which come on later tend to be female predominant. There is something very, very important about the interaction between sex and the human brain. And we are really at the very, very beginning of this journey of understanding this. Um, we've been trying to identify this ourselves. We see a little bit of interaction between gene expression changes in male and female brains, and it seems to be on those microglia cells, which we saw in the post-mortem brain. If we're onto something here, this could be very interesting because it sounds a lot more treatable than a neurological defect, and it might be we could replicate that protection in females in males. Um, but that model um, actually doesn't change for whether it's diagnostic or not. That would just really determine who we give that treatment to. So the question is, um, we, we view autism as, as a negative phenomena. Could there be a counteractive positive phenomena which explain why it persists in the population? Uh, that's a great question. So um, I once ran a simulation to try and see um, how, how many common variants could be tolerated in the population, which had a slightly negative effect. And I thought, you know, if I run it for 400, 10,000 generations, eventually it'll reach a steady state. And it didn't. It just kept removing them from the population, which, of course, in retrospect, seemed obvious. And that is that Darwin was right. You know, selection really, really works. Any negative effect with enough generations will be completely removed. So how can these common variants exist? So there's two possibilities, or two easy possibilities. The first is, for every negative, there is a positive. That these, disor- these, um, these variants, which contribute to a degree of autism risk, protect you in some other situation. Cancer, or I don't know, they, they make you able to run a bit faster when, uh, when you're attacked by you know, animals. Um, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is that while having many of these variants is deleterious, having a few of them is an advantage. Both of those, I think, are um, open for debate. We don't have any evidence to suggest that that's true. It's a difficult one to consider because we need to think about the current um, situation and we also need to think about historically the effects of this. But it's, I think, a very useful principle in thinking about genetics. There has to be balance. And over time... Positives and negatives need to balance unless it's an overmutation. Quite what we mean by a positive effect is also very difficult to define. It might be that you have a sort of fairly high deleterious effect towards autism, but many, many, many tiny protective effects in many other disorders, and that would be enough to create balance without us finding it. It has proven extremely difficult to find protective variants in the human genome, but it's an area of very active research because if you can find protection, you can then replicate it. And so from a therapeutic point of view, it's a really active area of research. Great. I think we've got time for one more question at the back there. So the question is about the um, recent uh, idea that uh, folic acid could be a risk factor for autism. So... I think we, we, whenever we see these risk factors, we need to take a breath and ask, does it replicate? We've seen many, many ideas of risk factors, of environmental risk factors, which have been put forward, and then you try to replicate, and it's not there, and you know, vaccines being the, the biggest example of this. Um, 
right now, folic acid is definitely a supplement we should be taking during pregnancy. Uh, it has a very, very dramatic effect on preventing neural tube defects. It is certainly important to track down environmental factors and make sure that public health advice is always doing, uh, doing good. Um, I, I do not at this stage know whether it's going to replicate or not. I think the important thing is to try it in a large, large number of families before making any judgments on it. When there is this idea of um, it's called winner's curse, that if you if you're the first to find something, um, you're the chance of it replicating is actually less than you'd expect by chance. There's also a very strong publication bias. Imagine I tested 30 different environmental factors. 29 of them do nothing. One of them shows some kind of association with autism. I'm going to publish the one, not the 29, and that leads to this bias of when we see these effects, and we've seen it in genetics, we've seen it in environmental factors. We always need to take these with a degree of healthy scepticism and make sure that key question in science, can it replicate, before we really take action on it. Thank you so much for your attention, and thank you for the wonderful questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.